0: Hello, everyone. It's good to be with you. I'm Becky, if we haven't met before. You may have heard my name just now. Um, And you know, it's so beautiful. It's beautiful there, but it's really beautiful up here because I see all you and all the sparkly lights. It's really nice. I recommend coming up and having a look from this view. Um, But it's great to be with you this evening um, at the beginning of December as we begin our Advent series. Now, Advent is an interesting word to me. Um, I grew up I was saying this morning, um, in America, going to church, I'd never heard the word Advent before I came to England. And then I only heard it really in connection with Advent calendars, because that was a new thing to me. Um, So you go at the shop and you get the little doors. I thought, oh, this is very sweet. Um, I really like Advent calendars. In fact, now in our household, we have one that is a game. That won't surprise you (laughs) if you know us. So every day, there's a little riddle inside and a little puzzle you have to solve, and it's going to build up for helping Santa find his golden book or something like that. So it's good. So that's Advent. But what does Advent actually mean? I was asking actually last year. I was like, what does it actually mean? (laughs) Well, according to the Cambridge Dictionary, I can tell you what it means. uh, It's defined as the fact um, in an event happening. Um, Advent is an invention being made, or Advent is a person arriving. Hmm. It comes from the Latin word, Aventus, meaning coming. And it's related to the word adventure, which is the word we use to um, talk about heading into something new. um, Something that we're kind of excited about. We think it's going to be good, but we're not really sure. Anyway, that's how I use it. I think it's going to be an adventure, I'll say, trying to make myself feel positive about it. Um, So Advent is the term we use in the church for the weeks leading up to Christmas. And Christmas, which comes from Christ's Mass, is the day we remember and celebrate Jesus coming into the world. And the term Advent is a good one to use to describe what it was like for those we read about in the Old Testament. Those who were waiting then for God to send his promised Messiah. The one who would come and rescue his people and make all that is wrong with the world right again. Now, we are on the other side of that equation. We know about the first coming of Jesus, we know about his birth, we know about his life on earth, we know about his death and his resurrection, but those who lived before could only look ahead with wonder and expectation. And I think that's a lot like how things are for us now on the other side, because we're looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. And from the glimpses we get in scripture, we can only really imagine and speculate about what that day is going to be like and what will happen after. We're waiting for Jesus to come again. We are expecting it, but sometimes it does seem the wait is rather long and we begin to wonder, is he ever really gonna come again? But then we know something in our hearts stirs when we hear about it and when we sing the songs about that day. And I like thinking about this week about how many of the great worship songs, the great hymns and the worship songs we have now that stand the test of time, they will not just tell the story of Jesus coming and what he did on earth and what his death means for us. That's all important, we need to sing it. They will also include the story yet to come when he comes again. So just think about like um, How Great Thou Art, which finishes with the verse, when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Um, When we think about amazing grace, it finishes with the verse, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first began. And tonight, bless the Lord, all my soul. Wonderful song. It finishes with still my soul will sing your praise unending 10,000 years and then forevermore. It's going to be part of our story. It is part of our story. And the thing is, deep down, it's what our hearts long for. Because when Jesus comes again and takes us, that will be our true homecoming. Now, it's that sort of hope, it's that sort of longing for something yet to come before the first coming of Jesus that so many of the Old Testament writers had. They looked ahead, and they were inspired by God about what was to come, but they didn't really understand it. And often what they wrote about would also apply to a current situation or one that was just a few years off. But it would be mixed mixed in with this further off prophecy um, within it. And I was helped to sort of understand what this is like once when I heard, actually Paul was teaching the interns. It's a good place, you you pick up things there. And uh, talking about um, the prophet Isaiah. But he was talking about um, how someone had explained about prophecy it's like looking at a mountain range. And I think on my PowerPoint, I have a nice mountain range there. And it's like um, God's inspiring the prophet. Let's say it's Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or Ezekiel or one of the others. Um, and they, they're just sensing things from the Lord. And they, they can feel what's coming. But they can't really. It's like looking at the mountains. You can see it. They look amazing. You want to describe them, but you just don't know how far away they are. It's so much further off than you can imagine sometimes. And, but they're all mixed up. There's things that are going to happen soon. There's things that are going to happen a long time away. And yet, when the Lord's inspiring and they're, they're sensing these things, it's hard for them to know. So it all gets sort of jumbled together in the, in the prophetic. So all of that to say um, that in these weeks of Advent, we are going to look at um, a couple of psalms related to what was happening at the time in which they were written, but also psalms that pointed ahead to Jesus. And today we're going to look at Psalm 2. So that's on page 543. If you want to turn your Bibles on or open the ones in front of you, which may be a bit harder to see, but Psalm 2 on page 543. And it says there, He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Wow! I know. You're thinking, what's she going to do with that? <laughs> That's what I thought too. Um, but here we are. So it's interesting to me that the second that this is the second psalm. The first psalm, which sets the tone for the 149 that follow, is about the person who's blessed compared to what happens to the wicked. And this second psalm, our psalm for this evening, is about what happens to nations and to groups of people who rebel against God compared to those who at the very end take refuge in him. And I can't help but think again that as the Spirit was inspiring those putting together the psalms, that that these two that begin this amazing collection of prayers and songs to and about God, this sets the tone for them. But back to Psalm 2 specifically. Now, in its day, not long afterwards, in the years after it was written, it was um, used at the coronation of the kings of Israel um, or Judah. And my NIV Bible says um, that this is a royal psalm, originally composed for the coronation of Davidic kings in the light of the Lord's covenant with David, See 2 Samuel 7. Later, prophetic words of judgment against the house of David and announcements of God's future redemption of his people through an exalted royal son of David highlighted the messianic import of the psalm. Thank you, NIV Study Bible. It's very helpful in its notes. And I read it, I read it again. I thought, oh, I know what it's trying to tell me. It's trying to tell me that after the Israelites turned away from God and as a result were conquered by other nations, taken into captivity and exile, well, they didn't have a king anymore even when they returned to their land. And in that, at that time, they began to see this psalm as more of a promise of what was to come. And by the time of the New Testament, it was understood to be prophetically speaking about Jesus, the Messiah, and was used that way by um, New Testament writers many times. And the first chapter of Hebrews is a good example of this. And the writer there in Hebrews, he's doing his best to explain what I was trying to say earlier about those who were looking forward to the Messiah coming. And I have it um, on the PowerPoint, so you can read along. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now, I explained to you, but he didn't explain about the mountains. I think it would have been helpful, but he didn't. Anyway, that's what he means. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. He's really wanting them to understand that Jesus is the one they were waiting for. And he goes on to say, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, and here's our quote, you are my son, today I have become your father. This is right at the beginning. as This is how Hebrew, the book of Hebrews starts. And then he goes on in that chapter to use other imagery from other psalms and uh, says your throne, O God, will last forever and ever and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Now, here in this psalm, and there, we have a lot of imagery about being a king. And that imagery is, doesn't mean that much to us in our day. But it would have meant a lot to those at the time that the psalm was written and when the book of Hebrews was written, even though those times were over a thousand years apart. The imagery that we have here in psalm two we have the chains and the fetters, we have the ruling of the ends of the earth with an iron rod and of dashing the nations to pieces like pottery, the need to kiss the king lest he be angry, and his wrath flaring in a moment. Well, those would have been very, very familiar ideas to anyone who lived in the ancient world. To hold worldly power, rulers were often cruel, and they were ruthless, and they needed their image to be one that would keep rivals fearful and at a distance. Now you'll know that history is full of examples of dictators and despots like this and as we know in our own day there are some current world leaders who aren't too far off from that description and there is a range but if you think um, that in some places it is bad and it it culminating in places like North Korea where people really, that is what it's like, they are living under chains and fetters and things like that and they really do have to fear um, the wrath of their ruler. When we think of Jesus in relation to this imagery though, it doesn't seem quite right, it just doesn't sit well with us. Because we know he describes himself, Jesus says about himself, I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. But we also need to remember that though God is love and Jesus came to demonstrate God's love to us, part of God's love is a holy and a righteous justice that will not tolerate evil and rebellion forever. He will come, and he will judge, and he will punish. Now, when Jesus came to the earth, he came to destroy the works of the devil, and that's what this is talking about. And the fact is, those who rebel against God and continue to do so, trying to destroy the image of God and his creation, they will eventually find themselves being destroyed, as this psalm describes. Now, to those who knew their need of him, Jesus definitely described himself as gentle and humble in heart in Matthew 11:29. Come to me, he says, come to me all who you all of you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls. But also just in the chapter before in Matthew 10:34 he says, do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, he says. Such a contrast, isn't it? But when he says this, in um, chapter 10 about not bringing peace but a sword, it's in that context of telling his followers, don't be frightened by those who would try to silence you. Don't be surprised when you're rejected or persecuted because of me and my truth. He's telling them, don't just expect peace when you go out and you try to, you take, take, take back territory from the enemy. There's going to be um, some pushback. I didn't just come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword, so we've got to fight back. And that's the message we need to take to heart ourselves today because our culture has been seduced by the lie that God's word brings bondage. And we're often encouraged to throw off God's chains and fetters and to um, break free of his rule. But that's just foolishness because it's only God who is our creator who knows the best for us. And we're well aware as well that in other parts of the world, there are many places you're not even allowed to talk about Jesus. And there are other places where even having a Bible can get you imprisoned and killed. But in spite of all of that, despite all the attempts of um, the, the enemy in the world to keep Jesus up, people finding out about Jesus, the one enthroned in heaven laughs and scoffs, we're told. He laughs and scoffs at all who conspire and plot against him. And he warns them instead to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice before him with trembling because a time of judgment will come. Now, Timothy Keller, who's an excellent, uh, who was an excellent Bible teacher, he wrote a devotional book on the Psalms that lasts a year, and he uh, did Psalm 2 over two days. And at the end of his first day on Psalm 2, this was his prayer to finish. Lord of the world, people resent your claims on human lives. I fear to speak of you for fear of ridicule or anger, but you are not intimidated by the world powers, nor should I be. Help me to know the joy of obedience and the fearlessness that goes with it. Very good prayer there. And then, of course, we have to remember Psalm 2, how it ends. The very last line, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that means that they will be kept out of danger, those who take refuge in him. They'll be sheltered by him. They will have nothing to fear. So, finally, how does this all relate to Christmas? Well... First, and most obviously, this relates to Christmas because of the incarnation, God becoming man. And that's how the New Testament writers use this psalm, pointing to the relationship between Jesus on earth and God in heaven as father and son. Now, God's people knew he was going to send a Messiah, the anointed one. That means one who's chosen and set apart. They knew God was going to send someone for them. But God did so much more because God came himself. Now, people have been trying to get their heads around the concept of the Trinity for a long time. Well, over 2,000 years now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct beings but all being one. We can't really understand it. The fact is it's beyond our capacity to understand, so we just have to take it on faith that Jesus was God in human flesh but emptied of his glory while God was still at the same time ruling in earth, and we also just have to believe now by faith that he is here with us by his spirit. Now, God knows it's hard for us to comprehend his true nature, so I think he's really kind in using a relationship that we can understand, a father and a son relationship. God the Father, loving the world so much that he sent his son to live as part of it and to save it. In that, God had made himself relatable to by explaining, I'm sending my son. His son sent in his name with his message who would teach about, demonstrate, and spread the good news of his kingdom. Now, when the angel comes to Mary, uh, Luke tells us in his first chapter, the angel said, don't be afraid, Mary you found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. And that name means the Lord is salvation. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So, Psalm 2 points ahead to this father-son relationship of God and Jesus. It points ahead to the baby born in humble circumstances, but in the most miraculous way ever, and with the greatest destiny of any baby ever to be born. He is in the line. He is part of God's chosen people, but he's God himself, and his kingdom will never end. So, that's one way this psalm relates to Christmas. Now, another way is in Matthew 2, where we read about King Herod. Now, King Herod was the local Roman ruler at the time that Jesus was born. Herod was not a nice man. He was, um, he was good at building things. History tells us that he had a lot of very grand building projects. Um, but it also tells us that he was constantly on guard against threats to his rule. Um, He assassinated many family members whom he suspected of disloyalty. So he was busy killing anybody around him who he thought was a threat. He was certainly a ruler who, um, as our psalm describes it, conspired against the Lord and against his anointed one. When the wise men came to King Herod looking for the baby who was born king of the Jews so they could worship him, well, Herod said, I want to worship him too. And I'm sure you're familiar with the story, how Herod conspired and he plotted, asking the wise men to come back and tell him where Jesus was. Not so he could worship Jesus, of course we know, but so he could kill him. Jesus was a potential threat to his throne after all. But as we know, Herod's plotting was in vain. God warned the wise men to go back a different way. And it says in Luke 2.16, when Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, which is another name for the wise men, He was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Now, that's just the sort of thing kings could do then, just make a decision. I just want every child under the age of two killed in that town, and it happened. Um, And it does happen still in some places today, these sorts of things. Now, King Herod conspired and plotted, and I'm sure he was inspired by Satan, who was doing his best to snuff Jesus out there at the beginning, but he didn't succeed. He did, however, cause enormous damage. He caused enormous heartache, as so many rulers and politicians have done throughout history in their reach and their desire for power. The wise men from the East, however, were those who sought out and they sought to worship Jesus. And they would be ones described in the last line of the psalm when it says, blessed are those who take refuge in him. The wise men were warned by God to go back another way, which kept both them as well as Joseph, Mary, and Jesus safe. So, to finish this evening, there have always been people and nations. There have always been rulers and subjects rebelling against God, wanting to do their own Doing, do things their own way since Adam and Eve believed Satan's lies right back at the beginning in the garden. Really, it comes down to wanting to be gods themselves. And because of that and the damage that sin has done, God made a plan. God had a plan from the very beginning to make things right. He would come himself, demonstrate the truth of who he is and what he's like, and he would defeat Satan once and for all. And that's what happened on the cross when Jesus died but then was resurrected three days later. And many commentators, uh, verse 6 in the psalm where it says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. They say that is actually referring to Jesus' crucifixion. That's when he um, won the ultimate victory. So those who lived before Jesus looked ahead with expectation to him coming and making things right, which he did. The kingdom of God has come, and Satan is defeated but we're living in the time between that happening and when the full effects of it will be felt. We're living in the time of the now and the not yet. The now part of it is that when we turn to Jesus, we can know his victory over sin and death. We can know his presence and his peace in our lives through his spirit. But the not yet part is we still live in a world where Satan is doing his best to stop people from discovering that causing havoc and destruction all around. So our part, those who who know him, we're called to help spread the word about the good news of Jesus. And we are called to be those who worship him in spirit and truth while we wait for him to come again in his glory. And when he does come again, it's then we will see him as the king he is. And as Revelation explains in chapters 20 and 21, it says, Uh, explains to us how there will be a time of judgment and then there will be a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more death, there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain because the old order has passed away. So in this time of Advent for us now, as we wait for Christmas to come in a few weeks, let's remember and celebrate the first coming of Jesus into the world because Jesus is worth celebrating. He is the best gift the world could ever be given. But let's also remind ourselves to wait and to watch in eager expectation for his return. Though the wait seems long, one day the waiting will be over. And we know that blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, can I ask you to stand if you're able, and we'll just pray and respond. So Lord, I thank you for how you um, speak, thank you for how throughout the ages, um, thousands and thousands and thousands of years, you've been speaking, you've been drawing people to yourself, you've been um, giving of yourself, and we thank you for what we can learn from your word, that it is truth for us and it is life for us. Pray, Lord, we would be those who would take refuge in you and who would look forward to you coming again. And I just want to read the um, prayer that was at the conclusion of Tim Keller's second day on Psalm 2. Lord, your answer to the chaos and strife of the world is your son, Jesus Christ. He will eventually break brokenness, kill death, destroy destruction, and swallow every sorrow. Teach me how to take refuge in you, in your forgiveness through Jesus, and in your wise will, and in my assured glorious future. Amen. So Lord, for those of us who um, have lost hope, or have never really, it's never seemed real to us, you're, you're coming again, I pray that this evening you'd stir something in us to begin to really long for it and to look for it and to expect it. To know that your word is truth, that Jesus, you are king. And one day we will see you come. We may um, be with the dead by then and other generations here, but one day you will come again. And we thank you that that is true and we can trust you. And thank you that at that time, you will set all things right that are wrong. And there will be to a, a calling to account for those who have abused and used their power in wrong ways. But we thank you, Lord, that blessed are all who take refuge in you. And that we can know the safety of your goodness and protection. That Jesus, because we know our need of you, that we know that um, you say to us that you are, you are humble in hearts and you are gentle and we can come to you and receive what we need. Thank you that you are our place of safety in the midst of the chaos. Thank you, Lord. And we just pray this evening as we respond that by your spirit you would be helping us to see where we've misunderstood or we've been um, believing lies about you and about uh, you coming again where we've been put to sleep spiritually. And you just help us to remember the truth and to see you as you really are more and more. It's like the fog clearing bit by bit so we can really begin to see who you are. Thank you, Lord. Lord. And then as we um, worship, respond in worship, um, we'll just have the ministry team here to pray. And I just felt um, the same as this morning, that I feel the Lord's wanting to encourage those. First of all, those who who actually don't look forward to Jesus coming again, you actually dread it or you don't understand it, that he'd love to just meet you there and help you understand more and to give you that longing for him and for your, your eternal future. But also just for those who are struggling with waiting, in a time of waiting, you've been waiting for something a long time and you need some hope. And he's always here to give us hope because Jesus is our hope. And um, I received this yesterday. I get often Joyce Meyer's mailings, and um, she always encourages me. And her one yesterday was on hope. And she said, hope dares us to believe. It thinks, you know what? Things might just work out after all. It's the sometimes unexplainable but always undeniable feeling that today would be a bad day to give up hope is what stabilizes your frantic thoughts and emotions it's an awareness that there is no problem big enough to keep God from rescuing you hope also enables us to endure hardships and long waiting periods and God uses these times to develop a character and endurance in us so God is always at work in our waiting but sometimes we need someone to stand with us and pray for us and just pray and we'd have that renewed sense of hope so as we worship now, if that speaks to you then please come and have someone pray